1: Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today, this sparkling October day, is the 900 and something (laughs) anniversary of the Battle of Hastings. Let's see now, 1066, uh, it's 46 years, 954th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings, fought on this day in 1066, that famous year. Now uh, We here at History at Light bring you all sorts of stories from the past, some familiar, others not so much. But this one, every year, sees some of our biggest spikes of traffic. People out there love 1066. They love the year of conquest. Don't shoot the messenger. So this year, we, have did, we did yesterday's podcast featuring two brilliant academics talking about the context of the invasions of 1066. Now, we got one of the best. One of the best. Mark Morris. Dr. Mark Morris. He's a best-selling author. He's an independent scholar. Of the Middle Ages. He's a friend of the pod, he's a friend of mine, he's a cool guy. He and I walked around the field of Hastings a week or two ago and recorded this conversation about the fighting that took place on that field. No one knows this period uh, better than he does, no one knows the sources better than he does, and he's a brilliant communicator as you'll hear. Now this is a very very long extended version of an interview that appears in our feature-length documentary about the invasions of 1066. We visited the north of England, we visited the south coast of England, we went all over the place. And you can watch that on History Hit TV, because it's Hastings. We have got our ridiculous offer, which frankly drives me crazy, but our CEO James has always loved throwing out this one at this time of year. You can get three months for just three pounds, euros or dollars in all, if you use the code 1066 1066. That gets you a month for free and then the first three months after that for just one pound, euro or dollar each of those months. It's insane! deep that you'll be deep into 2021 but in the meantime enjoy this interview with the one and only mark morris So, Mark, we're staying on the battlefield. Did you get a sense down here in the valley? That's quite a steep hill, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. It's been uh, levelled out over the centuries. I mean, the the abbey was founded soon after the battle itself, and the abbey was in existence until the dissolution in the early 16th century. So you've had 500 years of monastic management here, making this hillside more suitable for the grazing of sheep. And they've definitely landscaped the scarp of the hill, or rather the crest of the hill, where the abbey stands. So you can imagine it being steeper, and certainly very difficult to ride a horse up, especially if you've got you know five to 10,000 Englishmen hurling projectiles at you. And so we think, well, William would have come up from the coast over here. William's coming up from his camp at Hastings, which is about six or seven miles that way, and surprising Harold, who assembles his army on the ridge, as I say, where you can see Battle Abbey is now. Harold's a quite a strong position. He's blocking the road to London. He's where he wants to be, right? Harold is in a reasonably strong position, but remember, Harold's strategy, according to all the sources, had been to surprise William at night, had been to attack William's camp at Hastings. Harold seems to have a favourite strategy, which is kind of, ta-da! You know, he surprised the Vikings, uh, Hardrada, in the north and won that, that battle by surprise. So he's hoping to do the same thing here with William. But whereas the vikings were caught literally you know almost with their trousers down with their mail shirts off in the north william's reconnaissance is very good his spies report that harold is getting near and william on the morning of the 14th of october marches out to engage harold so it's kind of from the sources it sounds like william surprises harold but also that william isn't fully prepared either so the two sides spot each other and rush to arms so, neither of them, perhaps, would have picked this precise site. It's not ideal for either of them. William, because he's rushing up the hill. Harold, because we're told it was a narrow place, so he can't deploy his whole army. So, William's able to line up his forces down here. William arranges his army, we're told, by the contemporary chroniclers, particularly William of Poitiers, his William's own chaplain, who wasn't on the battlefield, but was well-informed. We're told by William of Poitiers that he arranges his army in three divisions, that he has archers, who are in the front division, then he has... Foot soldiers, infantry, men at arms, heavily armed foot soldiers. And then in the third line, he has his mounted men, his cavalry. Now, I think it's William of Poitiers who says that because of the rush to arms, he had wanted to put the cavalry in the second division and have the infantry behind. But again, there's that sense in both the main contemporary written accounts, the Carmen and William of Poitiers, that there is a sudden rush to arms and both sides make the best arrangement they can come up with very, very quickly. For the English, That is, they're fighting in a fairly tried and tested way, right? On their
1: feet, anchored to the ground, shield wall, not going anywhere.
2: Yeah, the Englishes have had a similar strategy for fighting for a couple of centuries against the Vikings, which is, as you say, a shield wall, to lock their shields and stand in a line. Now, you know, because this is an academic-type show, there are some historians who would say, well, they did that. Sometimes and other times they rode into battle. So it's not quite as perhaps clear-cut as some would have you believe. But on this occasion, the English king in particular, Harold, says, we're going to stand to fight. And it produces a very unusual battle. That was, again, something said by contemporaries, a very unusual battle because one side just stood still and kind of took it on the chin, while the other side charged up the hill and tried to smash through. So it's two utterly different ways of approaching battle, which makes Hastings such an exciting and unusual battle to investigate. Because the fighting that started here on that Saturday morning went on all day. I mean, that was quite unusual. It goes on all day, yeah. Well, I mean, some battles went on all day, but normally they are resolved in a couple of hours because one side has superior weapons or superior numbers and something gives fairly early but in this case it's a war of attrition if you like until they're worn out and it could have quite easily ended in a stalemate as some battles did but it does go on from roughly nine in the morning until the sources say darkness is descending so round about 5 p.m what's your gut about how many people might have been here on this battle approaching the question of numbers i'm going to go back to the sources the sources say 150,000, 60,000. Now we know, this is 11th century sources, in the 11th century, we've only got chroniclers. And when they use numbers like that, they just mean a huge number of people. When we go to the later Middle Ages, where we actually have administrative documents that say, well, this is how many infantry we paid. You never get armies of more than 30, 35,000 people in the British Isles in the late Middle Ages. Edward I fields about 30,000 people at Falkirk, 1297. No king of England, however, from the better documented later Middle Ages, ever gets more than 10,000 men in one go across the Channel. So for William to have had more than 10,000 men, for William to have been into five figures, he would have had to have been able to marshal bigger armies than, say, Edward III at the height of the Hundred Years' War, which he's clearly not powerful enough to do. So I reckon, based on that analogy with later, better documented centuries, 5,000 to 10,000 men... And because it's equally matched, roughly the same on the English side, but that's I think as far as we can go. Let's talk about the French and the Normans
1: first. Is they're all professional soldiers? Not much in the way of a kind of peasant militia knocking about.
2: Not much in the way of a peasant militia. I I mean, so you bring across people who are well armed, and I think that's Harold's problem. Is not that he relies on a peasant militia? I think that's kind of an outdated nineteenth-century idea. But the sense that Harold has. Well trained professional men armed, his household and their servants, you know, uh, sort of the aristocracy, who turn out for him, his house cards. And the difficulty for Harold is he's just fought a battle in the north and lost a lot of men. He's sent them all home twice by this point. So for Harold, is a sense of he could have probably found better equipped men, but he would have had to wait. And as I say, Harold's strategy is, favourite strategy seems to be surprise! And the, the contemporary sources say, he set out before his whole army was drawn up. And the consensus among contemporaries seems to be, had he waited longer, he could have assembled a bigger and better equipped army.
1: So the are quite different styles of fighting on this battlefield. You've got the, the Normans on horseback stuff. Were the different
2: technologies, weapons and things? Not much. I mean, when you look at the Biotapstu, which is our principal source for, our principal visual source, our only visual source, You can see that the kit is pretty much the same so they both have the same kind of conical helmets with flat fixed nasals over the nose they're both wearing male shirts there are tiny differences depending on whether you're on a horseback or whether you're on foot whether you have like a male skirt or male trousers if you like but broadly the same one difference you can see in the, the sort of the viking influence on england in the previous 100 200 years is some of harold's doughtiest warriors are wielding one-bladed or two-bladed axes. So they have a slightly more Scandinavian vibe going on. The other thing that seems to be very crucial for the battle, which we must talk about, is archery. Because the sources make constant reference to the number of Norman archers. To be fair, they are Norman sources, which are the more uh, verbose ones. But they talk about William having archers, and they talk about the the lethal volleys, the sort of shower of, of missiles being projected towards the English. They don't mention the English archers at all. None of the sources refer to English archers, with the sole exception of the bio-tapestry that has one guy on the English side, one little guy with a bow and arrow. Later sources, early 12th century ones, actually denigrate the English and say, they were so stupid they didn't even know about arrows, which is, of course, nonsense. You know, people on cave paintings have bows and arrows hunting bison, so clearly the English had archery, but, And it's an argument from silence, but it's a reasonable one. It seems that Harold didn't have archers in any great numbers, and this was undoubtedly to his disadvantage.
1: Famously, it looks like some of the English do occasionally run down thinking those Normans, rather than withdrawing, are
2: actually retreating. Yeah, you bring us on to the crucial point of the battle, because the crucial point that all the sources agree on, so the the detailed sources are the Carmen, William of Poitiers and the Bayer Tapestry, they all agree on the fact that at some point the Normans started to run away. They disagree as to whether it was feigned or whether it was real. So real or ruse, you know, feigned or genuine. The Normans start to run away and uh, the English follow them down the hill, as you say and then the Normans wheel round and turn it to their advantage. Now, it's impossible to unpick which source is right there. I think the most credible one is perhaps the Normans tried to feign it. Uh, the Carmen says a flight that was started off as a ruse, as a trick, then became real one as it went wrong. But they managed to get the line back together. It's the Norman line that starts to collapse in the first instance. There's lots of chronicle accounts. We've got famously William himself on the tapestry and in the written sources riding along the battle line, lifting up his helmet because this is pre-heraldry, they can't identify who the king is, lifting up his helmet to show his face, exposing himself to that personal risk, and shouting at his troops, look at me, I'm still alive and with God's help we'll win. You know, Come on, pull yourself together, reform the line. You know that sort of bit in Lord of the Rings, reform the line, reform the line. That's the, the, the Normans pull that off and they manage to sort of uh, encircle the groups of Anglo-Saxons who have come down from their ideal position on the top of the hill and pick them off. And it's, it's that breaking of the shield wall that does for Harold and the Anglo-Saxons and the English. Because once there are gaps in the shield wall, then the Norman cavalry can break through and pick people off individually and encircle them. So the integrity of the shield wall is all. Once it's compromised, it's game over. So in the 19th century, a lot of comparison, if you like, stalemate, endless French attacks all day. It's a little bit like the Battle of Waterloo. Well, what's interesting about it's interesting you mentioned the Battle of Waterloo, because I'm a medievalist, not a modernist like yourself. And I... What, the only thing I know about the Battle of Waterloo is historians, contemporary historians at the time, were so keen to know what happened at the Battle of Waterloo, they had people who participated in the battle write down very detailed events about who they were and who they were with and where they were at what precise time, and they were all completely contradictory. Which just goes to show you how difficult it is to try and recover the action of a battle that's nearly a millennium ago with these accounts that we've got by people who weren't even there, you know? So we can only describe this battle with very the broadish of brush strokes you know it was a war of attrition at some point late afternoon something went terribly wrong for the normans at first that they turned to their advantage and then it was the the shoe was on the other foot and the english line was compromised
1: OK, Mark, we have climbed to the top of that hill. Is this, this is where the battle
2: reached a climax? Well, yeah, the, the, the turning point, the thing that decides the battle, all the sources agree, as you'd expect, is the death of King Harold, you know, the elimination of one of the, the two contenders for the throne. And this is the spot where it almost certainly happened. This is the place where, this is the, the whole abbey site, but we are stood at the east end of the abbey church, which contemporary sources tell us was erected on the spot where Harold was slain. How do you think he was slain? Well, of course, famously, you see Harold on the biotapestry. The famous thing you see on all the tea towels and the key rings and the bookmarks is Harold with an arrow lodged in his eye socket. And so everyone knows that from childhood. The problem is, there's lots of problems with the biotapestry. The main problem with the biotapestry is it's an artistic source done years after the event by someone who wasn't there. And how much trust can we place in it? They'll also say, is the figure with the arrow in the eye Is it actually an arrow or has it been improved by 19th century French restorers? Was that figure originally holding a spear? It might have been. The main difficulty for me is even if you say, okay, let's assume the guy with the arrow in the eye, one, it is an arrow, and two, yes, it is Harold. The main problem for me is that, as I say, it's an artistic source, and it borrows from other artistic sources. So the tapestry artist was constantly going through the illustrated manuscripts in Canterbury, where it was made, saying, oh, that's a nice picture of the Last Supper. That can be the Normans having their pre-battle feast. So he's copying all the time. And it seems, in the case of the arrow in the eye, that he's copying the story of King Zedekiah, a king who rebelled against his overlord, Nebuchadnezzar, and he was punished by having his sons murdered in front of him, which you see in the margin of the tapestry, and by having his eyes put out. So this is a king who was blinded. And that scene on the tapestry is very, very similar to illustrated manuscripts of roughly the same time showing the death of King Zedekiah. So it could be that the tapestry, which is our only contemporary source for the arrow in the eye, is merely just copying a book he had to hand of another contumacious vassal rebelling against his rightful overlord, which is, of course, how the Normans saw this struggle. So there's very little to go on with the arrow in the eye story. Later chroniclers, of course, mention it, but they're probably back referring to the tapestry. So you think it might have been the Norman hit squad that goes in, seizes his banner, hacks their way into the shield wall? You're referring, of course, to the account in the Carmen, which is a poem with all the problems that that entails, but it is very closely contemporary. We think that the Carmen was created before the spring of 1068, so within 18 months of the battle. And the Carmen said nothing about getting an arrow in the eye. The Carmen suggests he was done in by a dedicated Norman death squad, including William himself. Now, all of these sources, this is 950 years ago, none of these people were present on the battlefield. You take them with a big, big dollop of salt. But remember, William needs Harold to be dead. You know, this isn't a war that can be solved by negotiation, this is a succession dispute. He doesn't just need Harold defeated, he needs him eliminated. And so, like later battles like for example the battle of evesham in 1265 when edward i decides montfort must die we're in a very similar situation if harold had sloped off into the darkness william has to fight battle after battle after battle so it makes perfect sense i think for him to go for broke as the sun is starting to to set that day and try and kill harold and harold very obligingly uh, dies on that spot Why did gaps start to appear in that shield wall? Just the attritional effect of all day fighting? Well, no, it's not the attrition. In the case of the shield wall, the sources are all in accordance. The shield wall breaks because the Normans start to run away. Whether because they're feigning it or because they were really frightened, we don't know, we can't decide. But there's a point in the battle, like, very much like another 66 date, like 1966, when the English think it's all over. You know, They run down onto the pitch, You know, celebrating. They think the battle has gone from battle to rout. They think they're going to chase the Normans into the sea. And then the Normans surprise them by wheeling round, reforming their line and killing them, killing the English. Once the shield wall has holes in it, then really, that was the English's primary advantage you know that was the fact that that was what was keeping them alive the fact that their shields were all locked together as soon as they've got holes in it then the norman cavalry have the advantage of being able to ride quickly among them pick them off in small groups even then though it could have been a stalemate it could have been a draw had harold decided like william wallace did for example at the battle of falkirk it's a defeat for the scots but wallace escapes on horseback he can ride off to fight another day that's the situation william is in if he loses they will be killed and driven into the sea you know, whereas, and, and Harold is still king. So from William's point of view, Harold has to die. They can't let him disappear and raise another army. Why didn't he run when he had the chance? Well, it's a good question. I mean, partly I think it, it probably just it was too late. It was too late in the day, and he was being surrounded. You know, I think you know, there would have been no ignominy in him fleeing at that point. I mean, lots of famous warriors do the same. So I think, I mean, possibly he was wounded. Possibly he got an arrow in the eye or in the chest. We don't know. But the, 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 the fact that is not up for debate is the fact that he died here on this battlefield, and the thing that is almost certain is, this is the very spot on van ilken the Stord, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says.
0: I
1: think we have the history of country? <laughs>